The following message was given at Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. The 11th chapter of Romans. We'll start reading at verse 1. This is God's holy and inspired word. I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be. For I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel? Lord, they've killed your prophets. They've torn down your altars. I alone am left and they are seeking my life. But what is the divine answer to him? I've kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. In the same way, then, there has also come to be, at the present time, a remnant according to God's gracious choice or election according to grace. But if it is by grace, it's no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. What then? Israel is... What Israel is seeking, it has not obtained, but election has obtained it, and the rest were hardened. Just as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes to see not and ears to hear not, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution to them. Let their eyes be darkened to see not and bend their backs Forever. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord abides forever. It was a time where if you went to church, you could expect for God to be worshipped with reverence and with awe. And you could expect a man of God to stand up behind what the old timers called the sacred desk, open up the word of God, and to preach the truth of that word without compromise and without concern as to whether or not someone might be offended. There was a time when you could go to a house of worship and expect with some regularity to hear not only about the redeeming love of a great Savior, but also the certainty of the day of death and the day of judgment. Those were common themes. Today, those themes are rare. Today, people come to church, and I'm not talking about you, because this wouldn't be true of you. If it was true of you, you wouldn't be here. The people come to church, and what they want is they, they don't want some guy meddling in their business. 
they, they don't want the truth to be brought to bear in a way that might make you feel bad. They, they, want, they want things that are, that are helpful, at least according to what they perceive to be helpful. And I, I want to remind all of us, when we come into this place, we come into this place to hear the word of God. And do you understand, and kids especially, pay attention to this. Do you understand that to, to hear God's word and to be exposed to God's truth and to have God's son offered to you freely and to be, and to be called to turn from your sin and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you understand that to, 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 to hear that, to be exposed to that, is an unbelievably weighty, sobering privilege. Years ago, we were at the middle school, and, and, and of course, we had, we had just, a, uh, just a handful of people, maybe 60, 70 people, and of course, anybody that showed up knew it was like, Wow! And the lady showed up, and she showed up two weeks in a row, and then she was done. And so when I called her and asked her, she goes, you know what? I work hard all week. I try to take care of my kids. I'm a single mom, and, and I've been here twice. And you know the only thing that I hear coming from you is repent and believe, repent and believe, repent and believe. <laughs> and so I said, have you mastered Repent and believe. <laughs> it, it is no small thing to actually hear of God's saving grace in Jesus Christ and then to turn around and have it freely offered to you so that you hear things like this. If we confess with our mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Oh, to hear that. To hear that. You understand that there's, there's so much at stake every single time we hear the word of God. Every single time. The old Puritan Thomas Watson said very accurately, every sermon either brings you one step closer to hell or one step closer to heaven. There's no such thing as a neutral sermon. Really bad sermons, you know what direction they take you. Okay, let me just say, there is something that is absolutely sobering, something that is weighty, something, there is a, there is a gravitas to hearing the word of the Lord, and this is why it is so weighty. On the one hand, it's so weighty because of, because of what it is. It's the eternal word of the eternal God. And so anything he has to say, we should be like, speak, Lord, your servant is listening. But there's another reason why it's profoundly weighty. And it's because every single person in this room has a soul. And that soul will never die. 
Once you breathe your last in this life, once your lungs stop, once your brain waves stop, once your heart stops and you are pronounced dead, you have a soul that will live on beyond that physical bodily existence. And that soul will one day be reunited to a glorified body or a resurrected body and will stand before the judgment bar of Almighty God. I was thinking about this this morning. So here we are yesterday gathered for, for Ariel's mom's service. And, and of course, people come because they loved Dolores or they love Ariel and, and they come and support. And, and there were a lot of unbelievers here yesterday. And what did they hear? They heard about a message of sovereign grace and a savior who delights to save sinners. And they're, they're going to be people. They're just like, yeah, not for me. Not for me. Not for me. You have to be out of your mind to say that there is a Savior who redeems all kinds of sinners and then say, not for me. So it's a weighty thing. Here's, here's, here's the reality, is that, is that maybe some of those people yesterday, maybe that's the only time they actually have ever even heard the gospel. And guess what? They're without excuse. Right? But guess what? You're here, you're here Lord's Day by Lord's Day. And to whom much is given, much is required. And so it is a weighty thing to hear the word of God. Why? Because we dare not trifle with God, with his word, with his gospel, with the truth. Here's the tragedy of our passage. Israel had heard the word of God. Israel had heard that word over and over and over. And Israel not only heard that word, but Israel had God's hands of mercy stretched out to them in genuine offers of pardon. And you know what they said? Yeah, Messiah stuff's not for us. You can keep that Messiah. We'll try to do it on our own. Things don't change. And so here's Israel. They reject their Messiah. And in rejecting Messiah, they actually spurn God's mercy. And then so Paul asks this, this unbelievably just natural question. It just flows out of, out of 9 and 10. And that is, God has not rejected his people, has he? And what does Paul do as he asks that question? He asks it in a way in which he answers it twice. There's a way to ask a question in Greek where you actually imply the answer that you want, right? I wish we had it in English. That way, when I ask a rhetorical question, I could tip you off as to what you're supposed to say. Paul asks the question, God has not rejected his people, has he? The implied answer in the construction is no. But then Paul turns around and says, may it never be. 
right? So he goes from, in a sense, a subtle implied answer to an explicit, vigorous, absolute denial. There is no way that God has actually forsaken or rejected his people. And then Paul's going to actually explain why that is the case. And what he does at this point in the text is he says, here's why God has not forsaken his people. By the way, verse 2, he turns around and he goes from asking it as a question to then just simply saying, God has not forsaken his people whom he's foreknown. Okay? And so exhibit A as to why that's true is Paul himself. He says, here's how I know God hasn't forsaken his people because I'm of the seed of Abraham. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. I'm an Israelite and I actually know God. So exhibit A, God's not forsaken his people because... I haven't been forsaken. I've been saved. Then what Paul does is he gives exhibit B. And exhibit B goes back to Elijah's time. And exhibit B is, so here's Elijah who thought that he was the only one left. God says, not so, Elijah. I've preserved for myself 7,000 who's not bowed the knee to Baal. And therefore, the, the divine answer is, look, Here's why God hasn't rejected his people. He had a remnant back then. He has a remnant right now. If God had rejected his people, there'd be no remnant. There was a remnant in the past. There is a remnant in the present. When we say remnant, we're talking about a small group within a larger group. And what distinguishes the small group within the larger group is that the small group has true faith and are faithful to God, and the big group actually should be, but isn't. Sometimes the remnant was a tiny circle, sometimes it was bigger. But here's the point, there was always a remnant. And so then Paul turns around and he says, that remnant has been... And is, even now, an elect remnant saved by grace. For that remnant, works are absolutely excluded. You're not in that remnant because of what you did. You're in that remnant by grace alone. You're in that remnant by grace. And, and, and then Paul makes a statement and says, you know what? Um, if it's by works, then grace is just simply no longer grace. So you go, well, how do you get in the little circle? And the answer is, for Paul, grace. Grace alone. That then brings us to what I'm just going to tell you is going to be a really tough passage for some. Paul then says, what then? So Paul is, Paul is one of the most consistent, logical guys on the planet, right? He makes an argument. He then asks questions. He wants you to make deductions. He wants you to see conclusions. So when Paul says at the start of verse 7, what then? He's introducing a logical conclusion from what had been said from 9.30 through 11.6. The what then is, so what's the conclusion of the, everything that I said going back to 9.30? And we, we know that because of key words that he's using that are in that section. 
Tom Schreiner actually says that this, this verse, or, or the what then, sums up the very substance of Paul's argument, in a sense, in 9.30-11.6. And so then he says, so what then? What's the logical conclusion? He says, what Israel seeks, it did not obtain. All right? So, has God rejected his people? No. Exhibit A, Elijah's day. Exhibit B, right? So, grace, it's according to grace. It's all of grace. And then Paul's going to say, so what Israel seeks, notice it's actually in the present tense. What Israel seeks, it did not obtain. What was Israel seeking? Well, just take your Bible and just turn back to 9.30. So what shall we say then? There's another one of Paul's logical conclusions. That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness. There's our word attain that we have in in verse 11, 11, 7, they did not pursue righteousness, but they attained righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith. But Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive or obtain that law. So what, what, are, they, what are they pursuing? What are they trying to obtain? They're trying to obtain righteousness. It's that simple. They wanted to obtain righteousness. Then you get down to chapter 10 and you read verse 3. For not knowing about God's righteousness and doing what? Seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. And so Paul simply says, so the, the, the overwhelming majority of Jewish people actually are seeking what they have not obtained. They're seeking righteousness, but they've not obtained it. Why didn't they obtain it? I mean, it seems to me, if, if you said to me after service, you said, you know, I'm really seeking righteousness. Okay. Would that be a good thing? Okay, see, the, the, the response, I wish I could have just kind of tipped you off. The response, though, is, is, is just true. Some said yes, some said no. Am I seeking to obtain righteousness? If I said that to you, I'm seeking to obtain righteousness, that could be a very good thing, or it could be deadly thing, okay? So, for Israel, their search to obtain righteousness was not a good thing. It was a deadly thing. And it was a deadly thing because they wanted to obtain righteousness in a way that was not consistent with the way God said you obtain righteousness, Okay, so, so God says, you obtain righteousness a certain way. Israel says, we're going to try to do it on our own. You do know that you come into this world. Are you ready? As a fallen, 
depraved, self-righteous, son or daughter of Adam. It is the delusion of original sin. So I come into this world, I've got a bad record because of Adam, I've got a bad heart because of Adam, but I come into this world, bad record, bad heart, thinking that actually I can do stuff that's pleasing to God. And so this is why, this is why all religions of works righteousness just appeals to the, to the natural man. Right? So you either have a message that is all of grace in which you say, I can't, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. That's it. If you do that, you have to humble yourself because you have to humble yourself by saying, my own righteousness is, is just a big steaming pile of dung on a silver platter. And I, I take, um, what's it called when you put like fancy stuff around the meal to make it look more expensive than it really is? Uh, garnish? So, so here's my righteousness. Really, really great platter. Big, steaming, heaping pile of dung. And I go, hmm, it looked better with some parsley. If you're going to get grace from God, what you have to do is this. My righteousness is absolutely as worthless and vile as that steaming pile of dung. No matter what I put on it. Little lemon slices, um, you know, uh, peppers, which is where peppers belong in my humble yet accurate opinion. (laughs) Throw a few mushrooms on it. See, it's all making sense now. And so, so if, if I'm going to get righteousness God's way, I've got to forsake that. I've got to reject that. If I'm relying on my righteousness, I can't be relying on Christ's righteousness. If I'm relying on Christ's righteousness, I can't be relying on my own righteousness. They are absolutely mutually exclusive categories, and Israel never obtained the righteousness it was seeking because they didn't obtain it in the way God said to obtain it, and here is the way that God said to obtain it. Christ for righteousness is the goal of the law to all who believe. Okay? God says, oh, I'll be happy to give you the gift of righteousness. And this gift is a gift. It's not what you drum up. It's not your energy. It's not your effort. It's not by all the good stuff you do. The righteousness that I give you is actually a righteousness that comes not from you, but outside of you. It's not a righteousness that you pluck up from inside somewhere. You know what you pluck up? When you pluck up from the inside? One of the things that you got to be careful about when you're deer hunting. It's a very smooth transition. (laughs) Is you got to be careful around the the deer's innards because if you 
If you puncture something that you don't want to puncture, you, you taint the meat, okay? And all I have to say is one of the greatest blessings of brain surgery is not being able to smell because when you do that, it smells. And if you puncture something you shouldn't puncture, it smells even worse, okay? And so if you want to pluck up your own righteousness, you know what you're going to pluck up? Bile. Lord, look at this. God says, if you want righteousness, forget looking in here. You have to look to what Luther called alien righteousness. That is righteousness which is completely outside of us. That is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And you get that not by, not by earnest effort. You get it by believing. Christ for righteousness is the goal of the law to everyone who believes. And so righteousness is, is not a matter of, you know, do it the good old-fashioned way. Earn it. It's, Lord, I can't help myself. I need the righteousness of another. And the only thing I know to do is to lean wholly on the righteousness of another putting all of my weight on Christ and Christ alone, not trying to hang on to a little piece of of bile here or a little piece of doo-doo there. I want to just be hands-free, relying completely on the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Faith alone. You say, are you... Are you telling me that all the time that I volunteer at this or that is, is bile? I'm glad you asked that question. It is absolutely bile if you are resting in it as if it just got you favor with God. Well, didn't expect to go down that path, but we did. So, what Israel seeks, it did not obtain. And then you might notice in the way that I read the text, but election obtained it. Now, I, I, I didn't do a survey of all the English translations, um, but like the NAS says, those who were chosen obtained it. So it makes it personal, but it's not the way Paul puts it. Paul actually says, election obtained it. So our translations say the elect or the chosen, but the word is the election, because what Paul's doing is he's putting this emphasis on God's action, not on the individual, not even on the elect or the chosen individual. God's act of election obtained righteousness. And so Paul, obviously, he obviously knows that the Gentiles are included. He made this argument in 930 to 1021, but he's focusing on Israel's unbelief and he's focusing on the Jewish remnant. And so he says, so what the majority, overwhelming majority of Israel was trying to obtain, 
It never obtained it. What obtained it? Election obtained it. Election got it. In other words, grace got it. Right? Grace, as it were, grabbed it and bequeathed it to the, to the poor, humble sinner that was chosen by God. Okay? So, hallelujah. By the way, when I was young, I, I despised the doctrine of election, sovereign election. I despised it. I used to come up with all kinds of illustrations in my, in my little brain trying to explain why you had to be able to, to keep free will. Okay. I stand before you today as profoundly grateful to a God who chooses by grace alone. And if you think, I don't like that. What don't you like about it? Doesn't sound fair. Are you a parent? (laughs) What do you do when your kid comes up and says, Dad, that's not fair. Do you go, oh my goodness, you're right. I'm sorry that I've hurt your feelings. And so let me, let me retract everything that I've just said and done and, and now operate according to your standard of fairness, you seven-year-old snotty little brat. Okay. No, what you do, okay, I can't say what you do. What I did was fair. You want fair? Okay. I'll give you fair. You're in your room the rest of your life. (laughs) Don't even ask for justice. (laughs) Right? So so what is it that makes us not like this idea that, that God has an election according to grace? Well, we don't like it because we say it's not fair. But then we... We don't like it because it takes everything away from our own contribution. Heiko said it in his prayer. The only thing we contribute to our salvation is the sin that made it necessary. Now for the tough part. What Israel was seeking to obtain, it did not obtain. But election obtained it. And the rest were hardened. Mm. I wonder if we're actually courageous and humble enough to actually take the Bible at face value. You do see the words, right? And the rest were hardened. You see that? Now, we shouldn't be surprised at this point because Paul said all the way back in 918, so then he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. So this isn't a new theme at all. And so who are these ones who 
were hardened. Well, they were the ones who had stumbled, as we'll see in verse 11. They are the one who, who committed great transgression, 11 and 12, which, which in context must be rejection of Messiah and thus the rejection of God's righteousness. It must be the one of the ones of whom failure is attributed to, failure to obtain righteousness through Messiah. It must be the branches that are broken off, 17, 19, and 20. It must be the ones who are in unbelief, 20 and 23. It must be the ones who are actually designated and described as disobedient, 30, 31, 32. And so why, why this, is this a partial hardening? You do know it's partial. Paul's going to actually say that very thing down at verse 25. For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed or ignorant of this mystery so that you will not be wise in your own estimation. That a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles come in. So why is it? Partial. It's partial, not because God hardens 90% of the heart, but because it was partial in that he didn't harden all of Israel. There was a remnant that was preserved. There was a remnant of grace. The rest, the rest outside of that remnant, they were hardened. Now, we don't like this language. It seems to us to be, to be, it seems to us to just be harsh, right? God hardened? Well, Paul's going to prove it, as it were, from the Old Testament, and he's going to do it by quoting a few different passages that he brings together, and the first support is in verses 8 to 10, just as it is written. Right? So Old Testament talks about this, he's saying, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes to see not, ears to hear not, down to this very day, and so... Here's this. It's, it's really sort of a profound statement. What Paul does is he takes Deuteronomy 29.4 and then he takes Isaiah 29.10 and he actually brings them together. And so what is hardening? It's God giving them a spirit of stupor. That is, he, he's, made, he's made their souls slumber or it could even be the idea of he's he's brought about a bewilderment bewilderment, or a sluggish spirit or a dulled senses. To be given a spirit of stupor is to be in a state of not being able to, to think effectively. To be, to be stupefied is to have no capacity to grasp the truth. Hmm. God gave them eyes that cannot see. Again, no ability to do what? To understand and to perceive. Ears that cannot hear. We, we, we actually know what this means. Ears that cannot hear is not ears that, that, that don't hear sound waves, right? So anybody have a conversation like this? You're going back and forth with somebody and you just look at them, just dead in the eye and you go, you're not hearing me. Right? What do we mean by that? We don't mean um, take the, the sound deadening earphones off. What we're saying is listen 
to what I'm saying in a way that you understand. If I say you're not hearing me, I mean you're not understanding me. You ever use that one with your kids? But, 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 you're not hearing me. Okay? You're not hearing me. And so it says God gave him a, a spirit of stupor. God gave him eyes to see not, ears to do not hear. And then he says, until this very day. So in other words, hardened, blind, and deaf in Moses' day, in Isaiah's day, and in Paul's day. What do we make of such a strong statement? Well, the loss of spiritual perception and receptivity was self-induced before it was a judgment. Should I say it again? A lack of receptivity was self-imposed before it ever became a judgment. Now, what we're going to find is that, first of all, what what God is doing in this, there's a term for it. It's called judicial hardening. I would argue that the judicial hardening is grounded in unbelief, disobedience, and rejection. All right? (laughs) We don't have time to do this because... We don't, but actually maybe next week or week after, if you look at Isaiah 29, it speaks of Israel's blindness in the first part of the passage, but then actually the end of the passage looks forward to a new day for Israel when they will be able to see, all right? Okay? So, really important. When God gives a spirit of stupor, when God gives eyes that don't see, ears that don't hear, in a sense, it's a judicial hardening because I won't see and I won't hear. You do understand that sometimes God judges our sin with more sin. You do understand that divine judgment may simply be the judgment that comes for what you already deserve, for what you're already doing. By the way, that should scare us. That should put the fear of God in us. Then Paul quotes verse 9, and David says, let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution to them. Let their eyes be darkened to see not and bend their backs forever. This actually ends up being just sort of interesting imagery. Um, Commentators go back and forth as to the significance. Here's one thing we know for sure. It comes from Psalm 69. Psalm 69 is an explicit messianic psalm in which Messiah himself is speaking. The very verse before the passage Paul quotes goes like this. They also gave me gall for my food and for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. Who said that? Our Lord Jesus Christ. So you get to Psalm 69 
And the Jewish people, instead of being the persecuted people, become the persecutors of God's Christ. And so the imprecation that's prayed now actually is applied to those who are rejecting Christ. So the Messiah prays after verse 21, talking about the suffering of the crucifixion, 22 and 23, he prays for those who rejected and crucified him. And notice the first thing is their tables become a snare. A table... In the Old Testament, imagery is a, is a picture of God's bounty, a picture of God's gift. And so for those who rejected Messiah, instead of the enjoyment of God's gift, as it were, at God's table, the Messiah prays that such gifts would prove to be a snare and a trap for stumbling and for retribution. In other words, Messiah is doing what? He's praying for a reversal. And he's praying for that which was supposed to be a blessing on them to be turned to a curse. Here's the thing. Does God give good gifts to, to all of us? Right? I mean, he causes his son to rise on the just and the unjust, right? He sends rain in its season to people who... People who who are righteous and people who are wicked, right? So there's this overwhelming sense of God pouring out his gifts on everybody. And so what happens is when we reject God's grace, what happens is that those gifts, which were blessings, are now turned to curses. If you reject the giver, the gift will come back to bite you. Then he says, eyes blinded, which echoes earlier part, and then backs bent. So one commentator puts it like this. He says, the idiom to bend the back means to bend down with difficulty, to undergo particularly difficult hardships or to be overwhelmed with trouble. Sometimes forced labor is implied. I would actually argue that just as a table turns to a snare, so also bent backs is a reversal theme. The ones who were, who were redeemed from a burden and redeemed from slavery now have had that, have that blessing reversed so that now back-breaking labor, maybe, maybe even under the law, becomes God's imposed judgment. Tom Schreiner says this. He says, the Old Testament text cited referred to God's work. He pours out befuddlement on the Jews so that they don't perceive and comprehend the gospel. He is the one who has reversed their fortunes so that their table of plenty has actually become the scene of their own destruction. He has darkened their eyes and bent their backs We should also recognize that the attribution of hardening to God does not remove the responsibility from the Jews. Paul never concluded that since God hardens, therefore the Jews are exculpated from responsibility for their actions. Paul deemed both of these truths as absolutely compatible. So for those who are hardened, let's just put it this way. It's not as if God brings a judicial hardening on people who don't deserve it. Okay? That, that's the thing. Is that we're not talking about God doing something to people 
that, that really they, they deserve the opposite. No. Here's, you want to hear a painful truth? All of us deserve to be hardened. That's a painful truth. Have you ever, have you ever turned a blind eye to God's truth? Or have you always kept laser-like focus on the truth of God to make sure you walk according to every jot and tittle? If you've turned a blind eye to God's truth, guess what? You deserve to have your eyes blinded. Have you ever ever stopped your ears from listening to the truth of God? I'm going to tell you. Every single person in this room has done it. And we've done it a multitude of times. I've told you before, I started, when I started college, I went to Biola, and so, yay, Biola alum, Jeff, and um, I thought, man, I'm going to go, I'm going to go to Christian Disneyland. This is like Christian church camp, and I'm going to, I'm going to meet all these people that are on fire for Jesus, and I'm going to just find all kinds of Bible studies and we're going to sit around and some guy's going to play guitar and we're going to sing Maranatha choruses until, until dawn and then we get to go to school and take classes and learn about all the Bible and theology and it's just going to be, yeah, I'm not even going to have time to sleep. And so, of course, I go and guess what? It wasn't like that. And in fact, I became disheartened about it. Guys from Biola that I worked with would go out and drink and smoke pot after we got off of work. I had my own issues. I had my own sins. And I felt my heart just drifting. And here I am. I have a class on basic Bible doctrine. I have a class on Genesis. I have a a class on Old Testament, early Hebrew history. And so here I am getting the Bible, 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 Bible. And I get kicked out of the dorm room I was in. Nothing, Nothing egregious. It's just that my other roommate and I like to wrestle and sing Bob Dylan songs. And so... The, the, th- the third guy complained about it. So they split us up and sent us away. And, and so I've got my heart and my heart is just, I'm just like dull towards God. And I know it, I know it, I know it. It's not as if, it's not as if it was a big mystery. I knew it. And that first night, don't want to be in that room. I'm grumped up about the guy that turned us in. I'm thinking all these people are a bunch of carnal little rats, and I don't like what's going on in here. I lay down and turn off my light, and of course, I take my contacts out, my glasses are next to my bed, and I look up on the ceiling, and there's this like glowing thing on the ceiling. I'm not joking. Can't read it. Take my glasses. Put my glasses on. You know what it says? Dead meat. (laughs) Dead meat. And you know what I did? Went to bed, woke up the next morning, and did exactly what I wanted to do. You ever done that? You ever turned a deaf ear? 
to what God was saying to you? Ever turned a blind eye to his truth? I don't care what God says about my girlfriend or about my boyfriend. I'm going to do whatever I want. Years ago, I'm preaching at Nevada State Prison. There's a guy. We never let the guy sleep, right, Charlie? There's a guy sitting in the front row, tall, lanky guy. Stretches his legs out, leans back in the chair, goes to sleep as soon as I start preaching. So I walk over, kick his feet. Said, if you want to sleep, stay in your cell. If you're going to come here, you're not going to disrespect God, his word, or these guys that have come to hear the word of God. You know what he says to me? I'm 40 years old. I do whatever I want. That's why you're here. (laughs) I tell you what, you don't have to be in prison to be, to have that mentality. How many of us have just thought, you know what? I know what God says, but I'm going to do what I want. Every single one of us in this room deserve to be hardened. The bottom line is that grace is the only thing that causes us to differ. Disgrace. That's all. The Corinthians, of course, didn't understand this because they thought they were hot stuff, you know. And Paul says, what do you have that you did not receive? And if you received it as a gift, why do you boast as if you didn't? Mm. Now, when God brings his hardening, it does not eliminate the responsibility we have to make sure that we see and hear the word, that we're humbled by the word, that we respond appropriately to the word. But here's, here's what we need to understand today. So as Paul's giving us this overview of, of what God has done in, in Israel, we have to understand that there's something in this for us. You can't trifle with God's son. You can't take lightly God's word. You can't treat with contempt God's grace. You can't spurn God's mercy. A heart, a hard heart, might be judged with a deeper hardness. My goodness, brothers and sisters and all who can hear me, do not miss that. A hard heart can be judged with a deeper hardness. So Spurgeon wrote a poem. And this poem is always, it's always stuck with me. Let me just read it to you and just, just think about these words as we close this morning. There is a time we know not when, a point we know not where, that marks the destiny of man to glory or despair. There is a line by us unseen that crosses every path, the hidden boundary between God's patience and his wrath. To pass that limit is to die, to die as if by stealth. 
It does not quench the beaming eye or pale the glow of health. The conscience may still be at ease. The spirit's light and gay. That which is pleasing may please still and care be thrust away. But on that forehead, God has set an indelible mark unseen by man for man as yet is blind and in the dark and yet the doomed man's path below like Eden may have bloomed he did not does not will not know nor even feel that he is doomed He knows, he feels that all is well. Every fear is calmed. He lives, he dies. He wakes in hell, not only doomed, but damned. Oh, where is the mysterious born by which our path is crossed, beyond which God himself has sworn that he who goes is lost? How far may we go in sin? How long will God forbear? Where does hope end And where begins the confines of despair? The answer from the skies is sent. Ye that from God depart, while it is today, repent and harden not your hearts. And so today, today, not tonight, not tomorrow, today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Run to him with faith. Run to him with pleadings and with tears. Realize, realize this. You have heard today a merciful offer by a merciful savior. And if you say today, not today. you may imperceptibly pass from simply having a hard heart to having a hardened heart. Do not trifle with Jesus Christ. Do not take his word his gospel, his mercy, his grace. Do not take it lightly. You say, well, I'm in the prime of life. I'm having the time of my life. I'm kind of living the way that I want to live. And, and, and you know what? I heard yesterday that, uh, that your mother-in-law, she wasted decades and, and, and in the last years of her life, God actually saved her. So that's how I'm going to take my chances is I'm going to, I'm going to actually just say, you know, youth and the prime of life is for the devil. I'll give God my old age. You fool. You're not guaranteed tomorrow. You're not guaranteed next week. You're not guaranteed another breath. That's why there's an urgency in the Bible. Today, 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 if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. If you hear his voice, don't turn a deaf ear. If you see the beauty of Christ and the glory of grace, don't turn a blind eye. And what you'll find is that there is a God of all grace who will shower upon you 
mercy and pardon and new life. Don't delay. Don't delay. Don't play the fool. God may end up saying, you fool, tonight I require your soul from you. Let's pray. Father, we know these are, these are tough words, but we pray that you would use them to break hard hearts. Father, that's our prayer, is that you would take these hard words and use them to smash hard hearts, make them tender, soft, compliant, receptive. We pray that you would do a mighty work and be mighty to save. And Father, for the rest of us, we pray that we would just, that we would just simply rejoice that, that we stand in grace alone, through Christ alone, by faith alone. That's it. That's it. Father, may we be the most grateful people on the planet. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope that you were edified by this message. For additional sermons, as well as information on giving to the ministry of Grace Community Church, please visit us online at gracenevada.com. That's gracenevada.com.